Hello and welcome to another Jed Talks. My name is Jed Shepard and I am your host. Uh, before we get to today's amazing guest, I'm sure you know who it is from the title of this podcast, I want to tell you a little bit about what's happening in the world of horror and myself in the last week. Um, first up, a little bit selfish, but I'm going to tell you what's happening with my film host just because it's doing pretty well uh, right now. Um, if you are in the UK, then you are in luck because host is screening at the Prince Charles over the next week four times, Saturday the 17th of October. Uh, at 3.55. Unfortunately, that's sold out, but I'll see you there if you have a ticket. On Monday, the 19th of October, 6 o'clock's the big Q&A um, in the big room with all of the cast and crew of host on the big stage. Uh, the next day, Tuesday, the 20th of October, it's upstairs in the slightly smaller room uh, at 9pm, but that is also sold out. Your last chance to see us at the Prince Charles Cinema, which has just reopened, is Thursday, the 22nd of October at 6.30. So if you are around, especially in London, I will see you there. In more host news, you may have seen that uh, international sales have kind of picked up and been announced that we will now uh, be in Japan, Spain, South Korea, Latin America, which is about 20 countries, uh, the Baltics, Scandinavia, Middle East, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Indonesia and Vietnam. So if you are in those countries and you've contacted me and, and the rest of the crew in the last couple of months to ask when it's going to be in your country, the answer is very, very, very soon. And that's theatrical as well. So um, if cinemas are open, you should be able to see Host. So excited for people to see it in the cinema because although it is kind of a, a desktop horror movie, um, I, I've seen it three or four times in the cinema now and it's blown me away how different it is and how much of a different experience it is. So I thoroughly recommend it. In other horror news, Blumhouse have released their Welcome to the Blumhouse series, which is four films, which aren't really tied together, but kind of form uh, the basis for this interactive experience, which is happening this weekend. Um, if you uh, go to Welcome to the Blumhouse website, I had a preview of it and it is amazing. It's basically live performers, like Quest Love is performing in this virtual kind of like apartment block hotel type thing and there's four floors in this particular hotel and it's all based on the four Blumhouse movies that they've released on Amazon Prime recently. I got to see uh, Black Box which was fine, a fine film and I got to see Evil Eye which I preferred as it deals with a particular Indian mythology which was, was quite interesting and how it worked with this virtual premiere is the, the cast and the crew were in a chat box alongside uh, the film as it played which was quite interesting so we kind of got like a director's commentary as the film progressed so i enjoyed that very much the london film festival is still going and although the number of horror films aren't really uh, up to scratch i think there's two this may be the third one i went to see riz ahmed's new film mogul mowgli at the prince Charles cinema on their opening on, on monday and it's probably my film of the year, I've got to be honest. Mogul Mowgli, Riz Ahmed plays a rapper. It's basically like if A24 did 8 Mile, but I just didn't expect the supernatural element to it. So I was really surprised and, and pleased that a British film's leaning into that so much. Yeah, so if you get a chance, please do go see Mogul Mowgli at a cinema near you because we want to support British cinema, especially ones that's slightly genre-leaning. Now... On to my special guest for today. It's Mick Garris. And for those who don't know who Mick Garris is, he has low-key been one of the people who have kept the horror industry going 
across the hard times, which I'm talking about the 90s, um, the early 2000s, when there weren't really uh, good horrors out there. He was out there slogging, adapting Stephen King things. He was also putting together the Masters of Horror, which is one of the best horror TV shows of all time because he's collected together some of the best names in horror to make a anthology show and some of the future names of horror as well in some of the other stuff he's done. So we talk all about that and things like Goonies and we talk about one of my favourite things, which is Batteries Not Included, which people sleep on quite a lot. And obviously the fact that Hocus Pocus is currently number one in, in America right now and he's the writer is um, it's really special to get Mick on and I'm really pleased he came on my podcast. So without further ado, Mick Garris. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Jed Talks. As you know from the title of this podcast, my name is Jed, and I'm talking this week to the amazing Mick Garris. Um, <laughs> you may know him as a director, writer, producer, podcaster. The, the man can do most things, and I'm absolutely honoured to have him on this podcast right now. Hello, Mick. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's really great to meet you, Jed, and to chat with you and and tell you what a fan I am of the film Host. I, oh, I think. thank you such a great achievement and, and a way to use the medium that is rarely used to such great effect. Thank you so much. That's, that's, that's really, really kind. And uh, myself and, and Rob are like big fans of your work and, and have oh, been like for ages and literally since we were kids. So, and that's kind of what we're going to go through today. Some of some of your choice bits of your filmography that, that I really want to just know more about. From a very selfish point of view, I want to know more about certain uh, films and TV that you've done. Because I've listened to pretty much every episode of your podcast and watch your TV show, I kind of know your history. But for the people who, who don't, how did you kind of get started in in this whole game of not only horror, just film in general? How what was your first kind of starting? Well, I you know I I grew up with a couple of brothers and a sister and and siblings that weren't close and parents who battled a lot and ended up getting divorced uh, pretty early in my my life, um, and I kind of like a lot of outsiders kind of turned to the dark genre for my entertainment. I, I was somehow really attracted to animation and monsters and, and dark fiction. And, you know, Ray Bradbury was my first passion and I read everything he wrote uh, up until the time I was 12 years old. And, uh, and then I got, uh, for graduating from junior high school, I got an eight millimeter movie camera. And I knew nothing about how movies were made and that sort of thing. And I had started writing seriously, writing fiction at 12. So at the same time, I started making little movies and didn't know about editing or directing or what anybody did. I just took the camera and rolled it and got my friends in the scenes and tried to make something of it. So then later on, I started doing um, literature, you know, uh, criticism uh, of first of music. And I was in a rock and roll band and a prog rock band called Horse Feathers. Nice. And then <laughs> and then I, I really started turning more to an interest in at least after the band crashed and burned uh, in in film and started interviewing people, writing reviews, things like that. And it became a passion. And in my 20s, I just started writing a bunch of screenplays, nothing that ever got made or sold or bought or, um, you know, couldn't get an agent or anything uh, until 
Steven Spielberg hired me to write amazing stories when I was 33 years old. And so I went from food stamps to Spielberg. And, and that happened because I was, uh, I had a day job of uh, doing publicity for at this time Universal and hired myself to do making ofs and things like that. And while, while I was doing the making of the Goonies on the first day of shooting, I'm setting up to interview Steven. And uh, he had been on my interview show on, on the Z channel and said, you must do a lot of these things. And I said, well, not really. I'm, I, I committed a terrible sin. I said, I'm really trying to make a go as a screenwriter. <laughs> and you know, I didn't say, here's a script in my back pocket. <laughs> Which would have been the sin of all sin. <laughs> but I did say that just because the conversation led in that direction. He said, oh, really? We're looking for writers for this new show I'm doing called wow, Amazing Stories. That's Story. the dream. That's the dream. <laughs> it is the dream. And everybody gets their first open door in a different building. But yeah. in this case, that's how it happened. And at the time, I had scored an agent who had submitted a spec script I'd written to Amblin, Spielberg's production company, and one of his readers covered it while we were up in Oregon on that location shoot for the Goonies. And the last sentence was, hire this man. And so Stephen read it and, and um, was the first person hired to write an episode of Amazing Stories. I mean, everything you're saying here is just blowing my mind. Like, <laughs> it blows mine. Oh, like, where do I start? So first of all, so you are on the set of The Goonies and like, it is obviously, it's one of my favourite films. It's one of the films that I kind of, because in in the UK, we don't make fun, we don't make fun movies. We make kitchen sink dramas and it's crazy. <laughs> and every time I try and pitch something to someone, I'm like, I want to make a film like The Goonies. I want to make something that's fun and uplifting and an adventure. Yeah. So what was it like being on the actual set of The Goonies? Well, it was pretty spectacular. You know, it was great. I had visited the set of E.T. and wow. Poltergeist and those things doing publicity and the like. And and from my interview show on the Z channel, I interviewed people like Toby Hooper and John Carpenter and the like. So I had, I was rubbing shoulders uh, with people who would later become, if not exactly my peers, at least worked within the same uh, field that I was working. And it was just an education and, uh, you know, there's so much excitement with people who don't know anything about movie making. When they go to a set, they are bored shitless because <laughs> you shoot the same scene over and over and over and then change camera angles and shoot it over and over and over. Yeah. People have no idea the, the work and construction that goes into building a movie. So for me, though, I'm looking at everything making sure to make myself a fly on the wall and mm -hmm. absolutely invisible and not in the way and just kind of soaked it up like a sponge. And it was all fascinating to me. And were you shooting on, on eight mil? Was it 16 mil? The kind of we shot the making of on 16 at that mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, eight mil was just a little too Neanderthal for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so that is, it's a great um, way to kind of, work out how things work and 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 what people do on set because that's think that's one of the most daunting things as, a, as a, a new kind of filmmaker like what does everyone do on set like how how can all of these people work together to make something so coherent um and then when you were asked to write it was the second episode of amazing stories wasn't it 
Well, it was um, the first one ever written for them. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, when I wrote it, I, you know, I got a phone call uh, and it's uh, Steven Spielberg calling for Mick Garris. <laughs> and my <laughs> wife was in the other room. I go, Cynthia, Cynthia, Steven Spielberg's calling. <laughs> <laughs> and so he came on and 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 invited me to write one. And it, I spent three days doing it. And then I turned it in and they called me right back and, and asked me to do another one. And so a day and a half into that, I was asked to be the story editor, work full time on the show. That's so, so cool. Yeah. Where, it are, was you, the, yeah. where are you drawing the, your influences from? Is it from the Ray Bradbury stories and, and from the films that you loved like growing up? Where are you getting your influences yeah. from at well, that from, point? Well, from everything, you know, of course you're influenced by the things you love, but my interests weren't just in the fantasy and, and horror genre, but they they certainly were strongest in that area. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, like Host, mm-hmm. that's influenced by life as well as movies and TV. Yeah. You know, it's a very lived in human movie. And those were the things that appealed to me too. I mean, I was unwittingly influenced by the breakup of my parents, by, you know, not being popular in school, by being an outsider, by being mm-hmm. drawn to music and films and books and television that not everyone was drawn to. So that's kind of a recurring theme with all people who were brought up within the genre is that 100%. that sense of isolation. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, so that as much as the Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits and and the uh, EC comics and the novels of of Richard Matheson and, and Ray, Ray Bradbury and, the, and all of that stuff. But I also was greatly influenced by the noir writers like Raymond Chandler and James M. Cain and those mm-hmm. guys. Too. They have a hard bitten way with words that mm-hmm. that is you know, hard boiled and delicious. And, and, <laughs> and that's more reflected in the fiction writing that I do. And then how did you feel once you'd, you, you knew that there was an episode of Amazing Stories with your name on it as, as, as writer, and it was out on television and the reception it got was, was, was great. And it's, it's still now like, like Amazing Stories, one of the highest rated t- TV shows on IMDb. Like, what did it make you feel well, like f- your first thing is so big? Well, euphoria. First of all, the biggest feeling was being hired by Steven Spielberg yeah. because he thought I was a good enough writer to write for him. Mm-hmm. Um, the ratings were not good on Amazing Stories oh, and really? it was not well received critically. Either. Oh, I never knew that. Right. Okay. Yeah. About a third of them were great. About a third of them were kind of middle of the road and about a third of them were honestly not very good at all. Oh, okay. But they all had great production values and great filmmakers and the great ones would compete with anything on a movie screen. Yeah. But still, to be there on Tuesday night uh, on NBC, the biggest network and, and all, and to see it and knowing that millions of other people were watching that at the same time. And one of them, you know, has, uh, you know, story by Steven Spielberg's screen, teleplay by Mick Garris on one card. It's like, well, holy shit. It's so cool. That's so <laughs> and cool. At, <laughs> and at that time, too, he was the biggest filmmaker in the world yeah incredible it was amazing yeah and uh, it was an amazing stories story that you came up with that 
ended up being one of my favorite underrated movies, which was Batteries Not Included. Uh, like, yeah. I absolutely love that film. That was a film where in the in the UK in 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 video stores, video shops, that that was always there. Like the cover was so appealing. It was always it just drew you in. Like, what is this film about with these little robots on the on, on the cover? Um, and it's one that I always seem to go back to, like, because it was usually like a, a, a th- three films for like five five quid or something and that was always one i always seemed to like bring into the three because it was so uplifting it was fun um and it did feel like an amazing stories story but just just well i'll tell you something about that it was an amazing story script yeah idea it was an idea that spielberg had written originally Mm -hmm. and he asked me if i would turn it into a feature script and i did and so he was very generous rather than saying story by Steven Spielberg and Mick Garris. He said, look, you get this. Wow. <laughs> because, uh, you know, when you go to the Writers Guild and you do your, you know, you put in your application for the credit arbitration, mm-hmm. you know, I want you to make sure that you get a credit because it was also Brad Bird and Matthew Robbins who, yeah. who did working work on the script after I'd written it. And here, I'll give you a, a, a tiny little dark side of that story. Okay. <laughs> that I, I was, this was my first opportunity to write a feature film screenplay for Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And that story by Steven is obviously as Spielbergian as a movie gets without yeah. being directed by him. Yeah, it really is. So <laughs> I was working my ass off and just putting everything I could into it. And it ended up being 140 pages long which oh. no movie should really be more than 100, 110, 120 max. Yeah. So after reading it, Stephen said, well, it took me three sittings to get uh, to read this. And that's not a good thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so it was like, okay, I am learning my lesson, Professor Spielberg. I'm burying my soul to your audience here right now. Uh, because it was kind of a slap on the wrist. And so I worked my ass off to, to get it down to like 110 pages. Mm-hmm. And it was the script that got the movie greenlit. So he was very happy with it. And then of course, when Matthew Robbins came on, he brought in Brad Bird to work mm-hmm. with him on some changes. But yeah, but yeah, that was the, the one kind of, oh my God, I've got to fix things feeling yeah. that I had in the Spielberg camp. But you're learning from, from the best and, it's it's a real underrated movie. Like not too many people talk about it, but I often do as like one of those like movies that people just need to watch because it kind yeah. of went under the radar and, and people don't kind of hold it up to um, like now th- though I do. And I think if there was ever a film that need that could potentially get a reboot or a remake now, that's one. That's a great one. I know you shouldn't really fix things that kind of worked the first time, but I think that has lots of room to potentially be rebooted, remade, reimagined. Um, yeah, I don't really disagree with you because it is very much of its era. It mm-hmm. has dated poorly in some ways, uh, and it's been long enough that it could certainly have a a reboot. And yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if something like that happened. But I'm not aware of anything like that. I might, I might stick it on my list of potential. I mean, I'm in the fortunate position where I'm often asked, uh, what would I like to, uh, to work on as a, as a reboot or a remake? And, um, I, I might stick that one on my list. <laughs> All right. Into. Do it. Do it. <laughs> it's, I, I absolutely love that. And then it, 
and it was from that point that you um, got the Critters Two job. Was it based on the on on that script? Yeah, well, it was that, and the fact that um, the original Critters was very Spielbergian mm-hmm. and very inspired by that, and it's a two million dollar little kind of rip off of Gremlins that they claim <laughs> was not influenced by Gremlins, but <laughs> it definitely. But by was. the time they made it, it certainly had been out, mm-hmm. um, and. I was working for Spielberg and the original writer on it, David Toohey had written his draft and said he was done with it. So they were looking for a writer director so they could have a two for one bargain. (laughs) And I had never directed a feature before, but I think they felt that because of my work with Spielberg, I might be the right guy to take a chance on. I had directed an episode of amazing stories that turned out pretty well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so it was their way of getting like son of Spielberg <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> to do their movie at a bargain rate. <laughs> so I, I, they've never told me that it was the Spielberg connection, but I can't imagine that they would have thought of me otherwise, other than by being pitched by an agent, but you know, let the agent pitch and then go, by the way, you know, his relationship with Spielberg, yeah. his work relationship. <laughs> he can't so, say no to that. Yeah. I wouldn't. <laughs> if I were making a low budget sequel to a ripoff of Gremlins. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I love, I love Chris too. And like, obviously Thank that it, it went on, uh, the franchise went on and it's still going on right now in the form of, um, more Chris films and, and also like a kind of a weird TV thing as well. Uh, yeah. the, the Critters 2 was a total flop. Critters 2 was yeah. a total flop in theaters. Nobody went, but it did really well on home video. On home video, so yeah. So three and four were made back to back for home video. Right. And did you have any involvement at all in, in the kind of like the new versions of it and the um, the kind of the TV show version? None whatsoever. I wasn't <laughs> asked and didn't offer. <laughs> you know, it's at a certain point, at a certain point, there've been enough critters movies. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I'll leave it to you to say what that point is. Yeah, it's um, the new one isn't isn't that good. To be, to be fair, um, and I'm, I'm going to skip a few films and go on to your first um, Stephen King um, adaptation, yeah. which was Sleepwalkers um, right. in 1992. I have. A very vivid memory of of myself and my cousin as kids in my cousin's house and uh sleepwalkers was on tv i think it was the sometime in the mid 90s the premiere was on tv and we were, we were small kids and uh we thought yeah yeah we, we can watch this we won't be scared of this <laughs> and i remember and like i'm i'm a diehard horror fan and even at that point i i watched like a bunch of horror movies but the, the how how you did the creatures like really affected me and like myself and my cousin we we couldn't even look at each other because we knew how scared we were we didn't want to admit <laughs> it to each other but um it's a real it's a real feat like how how did the relationship with and again i know this myself but how did the relationship with stephen king first kind of happen well it was all the studios doing um i had been pitched as a director for sleepwalkers now i'd done a feature and then i'd done psycho 4 as well mm-hmm. so i was ready to do a studio feature on the lower budgetary rung yeah and i went in and met with them <clears throat> with the studio executives and it went really well they liked uh my connection to king's material uh and my respect for it 
So um, neither of the movies I had done had been particularly successful financially before, mm-hmm. but at least it showed I was able to take command of, of the storytelling in a cinematic form. Yeah. So they said, oh, it went well. We, we really, it's going to happen. Meanwhile, we have to meet with another director who's represented by an agency that we have a close relationship with. So, you know, we just have to do that. So we can't say you've definitely got it. So they gave it to the other director and the other director started rewriting it and making major changes to it, including a planet of sleepwalkers. Um, Oh my God. So, you know, if you do that, you're not going to be able to put Stephen King's name in the title, Stephen yeah. King's Sleepwalker, as if it's no longer his. Mm-hmm. So the studio uh, decided that that was not a relationship that should continue and uh, brought me on board for a meeting. They had me come to a lunch meeting and said, okay, here's your office. Here's the key. And it was, wait, I'm being hired to do, I'm starting today. <laughs> I had no idea. And so I met, Steve really was on the phone. We never met in person until we shot his cameo on uh, on the set with Toby Hooper and and uh, Clive Barker. So, wow. <laughs> um, you know, I would I, I would offer to do uh, I would offer to do pages that the studio wanted some, they had some notes that they wanted to address. And he said, no, 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 let me, let me do it. And he'd fax me six pages the next day that were just great. Wow. So, wow. That's, that's crazy. So did you feel any pressure to, because you knew the last guy was sacked, did you feel any pressure to kind of keep it as Stephen King, as Stephen King wants it? Um, Well, one of my jobs was as a writer to kind of return it to, what King had done Mm -hmm. and yet address their notes too. So I did some of that, but mostly, you know, we went back to King's draft. I made some freshening up and then really when it came to any major scenes or anything, he would do that. The the one contribution that I made to the script was the scene where you, uh, well, first the opening titles and the, uh, the artificial encyclopedia, um, (laughs) of the uncanny and then the scene uh where mother and son are having sex in front of the mirror and they're revealed in that yes so yeah really really cool stuff um and that leads me on to something that is very appropriate for right now and that's hocus pocus Ah. so (laughs) i haven't ever spoken about that one before no you never have especially (laughs) this time of year yeah Um, but like hocus pocus is a movie that I hold dear and a lot of people hold dear. And it was, again, it wasn't like the biggest hit when it first came out, right? It was not at all. No, it was mildly successful. And now yeah. it's the biggest Halloween movie in history. Yeah. And it's, is it number one in the, in the U S box office right now? Did I, it was uh, on Friday. It was, but I think tenant caught up over the weekend, oh, just a small, uh, but tenet, still, yeah. <laughs> still a 27 year old movie that's been on video all of that time and you can access it's on every day of the every day of the month of October on freeform network here. (laughs) And yet people are paying to go see it in the theater. And it's the number two movie out there. It's like, 
it was not particularly liked when it came out, except by people like you who yeah. saw it when you were kids. Yeah. And it's fair. It's, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's like a warm hug every Halloween. Like it's almost <laughs> a, the default film to put on because you know, it's, you can kind of relax and you can, the world's so well formed. And yeah. um, there's, there's, there's stuff about it that also plays into some of the stuff that I'm going to be doing in the future, because um, I don't know if you've seen the short that myself and Rob did called Salt. No, no. So this is send me the link. I, I will I do. Yeah. It, yeah, and it's a film about a, a mother and a daughter, and every night they have to draw a salt circle around themselves um, oh. to protect themselves from a demon. And wow. um, yeah, and it's it's really cool, and it's the kind of it's the short that got us noticed by Sam Raimi, and why we're doing something with Sam Raimi. And oh, fantastic! People. I love Sam. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'll tell you about that later. Um, but the the idea must have come from Hocus Pocus, like, because ah. they do it in Hocus Pocus. And I, cause I'd always thought I'd got it from, from possibly that Russian movie, V, V-I-Y, V. From oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, where do I get that from? And then last year, Halloween, um, we, it was in the Prince Charles cinema in London. They put on a big screen in, um, just, I think the day before Halloween, everyone was there in costumes and stuff. And that scene came on where they, but they draw a sort of circle around themselves and everyone looked at me and Rob and we were like, oh damn, we got it from Hocus Pocus. That's what we got well, I'm from. so happy to have influenced you. <laughs> you really did. You really did. So like, like I, I definitely hold Hocus Pocus like close to my heart and a lot of people I know also do. So I'm glad it's doing so, so well. Um, well, it's quite surprising. And, you know, I wrote it eight years before it was produced. And they had another 11 writers on it after me. Oh, and God. it ended up going back to almost scene by scene what we had done originally. They brought yeah. in a comedy writer to add more comedy. Mine was a little darker. Yeah, I can imagine. And, uh, the main difference is that I had the kids at 12 and mm -hmm. they made the kids 16. You know, yeah. for me, Halloween means a lot more if you're 12 years old yeah. and it's, it's a turning point in your life, in your maturation. Mm -hmm. Whereas at 16, you're stealing the candy from the 12 year old. Yeah. Wow. So. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. And that brings me on to something to a film, a TV movie that I watched at the start of lockdown. And I put, I put it on Twitter. Now you did actually respond to me. This was about a month ago. You probably don't remember, but I watched the double VHS of the stand at ah. the start of lockdown. And and obviously because it played into the into the whole the world's gonna end kind of vibe that we had when when especially lockdown in the UK first started in in, in March. And I was like, what film could I watch to best represent what's happening now? And Good luck. Yeah. yeah, and I and I stuck on the double VHS that I had at my parents' house because I locked down with my parents. And wow. it was um, yeah, it's this old VHS that I've I've had since I was a kid, basically. And I watched it in in that form and it and it was just absolutely brilliant. And it really stands up to this day. Performances you you, you got out of those guys it was amazing. Oh, Molly Ringwald, I, career uh, best. Like, oh, thank you. I <laughs> I really was lucky to get the cast I got and to be able to work so well with all of them, you know. Uh, and I wish you had waited and gotten the Blu-ray because it's oh, never yeah. looked better ever. Really? I will. Is that uh, out they, already? It is, and right, it I'll went. It. They went back to the 16 millimeter negative because it was shot oh. in 16 to save money, which oh, was wow. very unusual. Okay. And they reformed the whole thing. I never thought there'd be a Blu-ray. People would ask, and nah, not nah, it costs too much. <laughs> but thank you so much. I mean, that 
was by far the biggest project I've ever had or ever mm-hmm. will have. Um, and, you know, you commit your life to something. That was a full year of my life that I was yeah. away from home other than a couple of quick stops, you know, in it's, between. It's, it's brilliant. And just it's one of the most iconic, like, intros you can get for any film. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Don't fear the Reaper. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, that. it's just perfect. And, like it's just everything about it is so good and so prescient as well. And um, some of the characters in it, like kind of represent some of the stuff that's happening now. And it's, it's yeah. really, really interesting. And um, so watching it with the 2020 vision and, and, and sensibilities, it's, it's really interesting. Well, um, you have to give most of the credit to that, to Stephen King, you know, the, of course. He, <laughs> the book is brilliant. He wrote the screenplay himself and, you know, he was in on the casting sessions. We would confer with him about that stuff. But um, yeah, it was it was a lot of work. But to get Ruby D and Ossie Davis and Gary oh, Sinise so and Matt Frewer and, and Rob Lowe, another career high for him, I think. And, and you know, we had Brat Packers in there not playing Brat Packers. <laughs> yeah. And Ray Walston. I mean, there's so there were 126 speaking roles in that oh show, God. and a hundred shooting days in six states across the country. I can't so, even imagine yeah. a production that big. <laughs> I can't even comprehend it. <laughs> yeah, there, you, you're not looking for light at the end of the tunnel. You're looking for the tunnel itself. <laughs> wow. And it, have you found like recently that a lot of people have been going back to the stand um, and finding comfort in it, like? Uh, like now a lot you know there's so many people talking about it now and that blu-ray you know when it came out was the number one blu-ray and it's here that's 1994 it came out um but uh yeah it it does seem to have a lot to say about what we're going through now with the big difference being it killed off 99 percent of the population whereas uh, Fortunately, that's not what COVID-19 is doing. Fingers crossed, yeah. Um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. You've done so much stuff, so many amazing TV shows and films. Um, But I'm going to fast forward to something that I watch constantly. And this is like on repeat every year. And that's, I always rewatch the Masters of Horror uh, as a as an as an upcoming horror person um i digested this and and processed it multiple times and obviously i've got my favorite episodes but just tell me about the whole master's horror experience like again i know it myself but it'd be great to like to hear from from, from yourself like how did it all start this master's well, horrors project yeah you know it came from you know a lot of the horror genre directors know each other from going to festivals or conventions or uh, directors guild meetings, things like that. And everybody would always say, Oh, it'd be great if we all had dinner together sometime, wouldn't it be great? And after a couple of years of that, I decided, you know what, it would be great. Nobody's going to do it unless I do. And so it took me a week of getting a dozen of us together to agree on the time and place and, and all uh, at a place in the San Fernando Valley uh, called La Frite. And, um, no, it wasn't, that's a different restaurant. Anyway, (laughs) there were 12 of us. It was me and Toby Hooper and John Carpenter and Guillermo del Toro and John Landis and Joe Dante and Don Coscarelli and Stuart Gordon. And, uh, you know, it was just Bill Malone. It was just this great thing where we had such a good time, not necessarily talking about horror movies, but Mm -hmm. just being together. 
And then there was a, a, a group at a table next to us singing happy birthday. And we all joined in. And at the end, Guillermo del Toro stood up and said, the masters of horror wish you a happy birthday. <laughs> and so it was a self-mocking name that we gave ourselves. And then we started doing it every couple of months. And, you know, that was, you know, almost 20 years ago when we started. And then we just would talk about how it would be great to have control of our own destinies. Mm -hmm. um, and so I came up with the concept and said, you know, would you guys agree to be a part of this if we're able to get it off the ground and do a pitch? And so the pitch was, you can have the greatest horror filmmakers in the world and it's not expensive. It's not, there's not much time or money that we can do, but you have to give them complete creative control. And so we pitched it to three companies. Anchor Bay was the first. And they said in the room, how much and when can we start? And we were <laughs> off and running. So wow. the idea was just, you know, these talented people, writers and directors, directors saying, what do you want to make? Do you have a script or uh, an idea or something that you've been wanting to make that would make a good hour? Or would you like to see some scripts that we're developing? Mm -hmm. uh, and so they were kind of half and half that way. Um, and so these guys were so re-energized by the idea. They'd been beaten down by the studio so much, particularly guys like Hooper and Carpenter. Yeah. Carpenter was on the verge of retirement mm. and this completely re-energized him as a filmmaker. And you can see it in the films. Yeah. Oh man. Um, Cigarette Burns is, is probably my favorite episode. It's, it's, it transcends television. It's, it's, it's better than film. It's, it's, it's so good. Like it's crazy. Yeah. We, we didn't have to please advertisers and because it was for pay TV ratings were not that big a concern mm -hmm. and they could do what they wanted to do. And, and it turns out that it was the second highest rated program on that network wow. so, on Showtime. Wow. And did you have a hand in writing every episode or was it just certain no. episodes? Cause you, you wrote you or you, you co-wrote wrote Jennifer. Four. Didn't you? Yeah. No, I didn't co-write Jennifer. That was oh. written by Stephen Weber, who oh, the star okay. of it, who was also coincidentally the star of The Shining that I did. Oh. Uh, and so he starred in it. And it's funny because Weber is a very funny guy and he'd written a lot of really funny dialogue in it. <laughs> Dario's English was not so great. So the great God Argento is cutting a lot of the dialogue and Weber's going, I'm so thrilled to work with Dario and I'm so pissed off to be losing some of my favorite dialogue. Oh, but what he, what he left is, was absolutely. Oh, it's, it's insane. Yeah. I always think like, like, do you ever, or do you ever think that some of these episodes could be turned into, into fully fledged feature films? Do you ever, do you ever feel that that could happen? They could be. But, mm -hmm. you know, they've they've already made their mark. Yeah. And, you know, if any of the filmmakers wanted to do that, more power to them. And in fact, my episode Chocolate was originally written as a, a full length screenplay oh. years before. And I'd never been able to get it off the ground. So wow. it got compressed. It went into the trash compactor. <laughs> Oh, it's great. And like, and, and after you finished it, you've got a body of work where you brought together some of the, the best people who will ever touch film 
just and, and it's kind of like something that you've made with your friends it's a bit like host you, you've made something with your friends that like yeah. people enjoying can enjoy for forevermore it's it's really yeah, impressive. Well, a, lot, a lot of them were were strangers to me you know oh, yeah. i i had met dario but i didn't mm -hmm. really know him and you know a lot of the guys were really good friends but really i just wanted to get great filmmakers and give them an opportunity to do that and my job rather than have a hand in writing all the scripts was say if you want my help i'm here mm -hmm. but i'm going to protect you from everybody else this is your movie and if you don't go over budget or over schedule it's all yours there's yeah. no way we're going to creatively interfere and it led to Takashi Miike making a film that Showtime would not air. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it, it's crazy. The, the the list of filmmakers you've got are just it, literally the the who's who of horror. And and as a as a kid, kind of like looking at like horror films and, and what you what I want to achieve with, with with things. Like you've just got all of the best filmmakers in one go. So it's almost like. Um, homework for someone that they, all they have to do is like look at look at that one piece of thing like that you've created and, and it's amazing it's horror, um, horror film school yeah yeah exactly and you, <laughs> and you kind of did it again and i'm fast forwarding a little bit to nightmare cinema uh which, yeah. which is amazing uh, as well and you've again you've kind of um created something to give people um, an outlet for um shorter kind of films um under under one banner um and it's Nightmare Cinema. So tell, tell me a little about how that came about. Well, it had the same philosophy. And after, after uh, Masters of Horror ended, after two seasons, mm -hmm. uh, it's because another company bought Anchor Bay and bought the rights to the show. Oh, and Showtime really? said, and they went to Showtime and said, we want double the license fee. And Showtime gave them the finger. Right. Um, <laughs> But that philosophy was great. I, I immediately came up with the idea of doing Nightmare Cinema as an international version of Masters of Horror. The uh, idea was to do one hour episodes, each one in a different country with a great filmmaker from that country. Yeah. So it wouldn't have the onus of Masters of Horror where it didn't have to be a name brand guy, yeah. but it had to be somebody special from somebody from the UK, somebody from Japan, somebody. So we never were able to get that off the ground. Mm -hmm. And the only way we could was as a feature film. So I decided five stories from four great directors and myself and uh, put them together in a feature film. But we had to do it for the cost of the whole feature. Two hour nightmare cinema feature was the same as one episode of Masters of Horror. Wow. We really, really had to do it inexpensively. So we went to all real locations and stuff. But it was the same philosophy, just international. We have a Cuban director, we have a Japanese director, we have a British director, and then two American directors uh all on board. So it's a great uh, great group group of people and, and it's really impressive. And I are, are you thinking of doing Nightmare Cinema 2 or make or making it um yeah, making it into kind of a, a a series of, of these nightmare cinemas? Well, uh, either way would be good. You know, mm -hmm. I'd love to do it as an hourly series as I originally envisioned it. Um, we were speaking with Shudder about doing Nightmare Cinema 2 until the pandemic kind of shut all the talks down about everything. 
but hopefully those talks will begin again soon. I'd love to have oh, a series yeah. of Nightmare Cinema features. I am or... going to be on to Shudder after this and be like, the first thing you guys need to do is is give Mick the money he needs to make Nightmare Cinema too, for sure. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. And we could even do all of them in a different country. Do, yeah. do them all in the UK or do each short in a different country. Oh, that's a, that's you know? a great idea. It's just a real nice, it's real nice that basically, you being someone who has kind of been through everything you can do in, in, in the film industry, giving a chance to like up and coming filmmakers and, 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 and new voices from, from other countries that people haven't heard. It's really good that someone's doing it because there's not enough people like you out there who are really trying to enrich the horror kind of scene. Well, um, I love the genre, you know, I don't do it to make money at it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I do it because I love it. And, you know, I have trouble getting projects off the ground like everybody else does. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm at a point in my career that I just want to do things that I truly love doing. And I love making films and I love being an enabler to talented people to be able to, you know, people who are, are not able to tell the stories that they would tell beautifully. Uh, a couple of times now, I've been able to help get those off the ground. And with luck, we'll be able to do it more. And with luck, I'll be uh, behind the camera myself again. And and what kind of projects do we have to look forward to you, uh, from you in, in, in the future? Is there, is there anything you have about to come out or what's stuff that you're kind of working on to come out in the future? Well, stuff that I've been working on as a writer. So far, there's nothing set for production yet and nothing mm -hmm. in post-production. But, uh, you know, I have a new book out this year uh, called These Evil Things We Do that has four novellas and a novel. Mm -hmm. And a couple of them already have been adapted into screenplays. But there's a new concept of maybe turning that into a, a very short-run anthology series. Awesome. Uh, I've written a couple of uh, pilots and series outlines uh, this year that uh, are in stalled locations because of the pandemic. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> you know, so the podcast will be back soon with Call some it. really great people. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a band I had in the 70s, we got a bunch of our best old recordings, remastered them, and we added new vocals and instrumentation to it. And we actually have our first album out. <laughs> really? Are you kidding me? Yeah. When does that yeah. come out? Uh, it came out a few months ago. It's called, uh, the band is Horse Feathers, and it's called Symphony for a Million Mice. And it's nice. a prog rock band. Awesome. So it's uh, on all of the streamers apple music all of them spotify and everything and you can get a special edition signed cd from horsefeathersmusic.com are there t-shirts horsefeather t-shirts <laughs> not yet there were in the 70s right okay <laughs> that's what you need well mick thank you so much for, for coming on you're an absolute inspiration to everyone who's working in in the horror industry and in the film industry in general and rob is well, very I need jealous to say, <laughs> i need to say that it goes both ways when i oh. see a movie like host it inspires me every interview that i do on the podcast I learned something and I, mm -hmm. I don't ever want to calcify and keep making movies like hosts that are exciting and original and, and scary as fuck. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mick. And if people want to get in touch with you or find you, where's the best place to do that? I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter uh, at Mick Garris PM on Instagram and Twitter and, and uh, Mick Garris and the Postmortem Podcast on Facebook. Thanks very much, Mick. All right. Great to talk with you, Jed. Take care. You too.
and that was me speaking to Mick Garris. How cool was that? That was so cool. Um, it blew my mind. Almost like every single story that Mick told blew my mind because he's absolutely living the dream. Um, and please do not sleep on Batteries Not Included. That is a, a real good underrated movie that people tend to forget about when they're coming up with some of the best movies of the 80s it is a brilliant fantasy film and i absolutely love it and i was serious about remaking it i know remakes sometimes are a sore topic but if there's something that wasn't appreciated first time around maybe the second time around it may reach a wider audience but yeah, that was great. Next week on Jed Talks, I'll be speaking to the filmmakers behind The Mortuary Collection, which is an anthology uh, film that is on Shudder in the next couple of days. And it's going to be good. I haven't watched it yet, but I will watch it today. If you want to talk about this episode or any of the episodes, uh, you can find me on socials. I'm on Twitter at Jed Shepherd, J-E-D-S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. Same on Instagram. But yeah, hit me up on Twitter because I'm always on there. And thank you for coming to my Jed Talk. I'll see you next time.